Hello, and welcome to UCC Translational Medicine Society's radio show and podcast, Narrowing the Void. This show aims to facilitate student learning and foster student engagement in translational medical research by talking to leading experts in the fields of medical research and basic science. My name is Mark Bisi, and I am joined with my co-host, Brian Curtin. Today, we are joined by Emeritus Professor Fergus Shanahan. Fergus Shanahan was Professor and Chairman of the Department of Medicine at UCC. Fergus attended medical school at University College Dublin, where he graduated with honours in 1977 and was awarded a gold medal in medicine from the Mater University Hospital. Professor Shanahan led a team of clinicians and scientists to successfully compete for seed funding from Science Foundation Ireland to create a multidisciplinary research centre, the Elementary Pharmabiotic Centre, or APC, which was established in 2003 and which investigates host-microbe interactions in the gut in health and disease. In 2013, Science Foundation Ireland named Fergus Shanahan as Researcher of the Year. Fergus, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Mark. So I suppose to start us off, Fergus, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and your role? Emeritus means, well, the E means out of it, and emeritus <laughs> means deservedly so. So I, I'm technically speaking um, retired, but I'm still active uh, in research. Um, I was privileged to actually be Professor of Medicine for about 25 years, and privileged in the sense that I got to see patients, I got to be a clinician, I also got to be a teacher, I got to be an administrator, I even got to be an entrepreneur, a leader, and a scientist all rolled into one. And that's what the job of, of a professor of medicine is in the modern era. And to make, that sounds impossible, of course, but to make that efficient, uh, I uh, based my research around the patients I saw and most of those had chronic disease. So the idea of pursuing a research project that's completely polarized to what patients are complaining of is unfamiliar to me. So I don't have difficulty talk, talking or thinking about moving observations from the bedside to the, to the bench side and vice versa. Um, to do it any other way to me doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, and could you tell us, um, Fergus, why you chose this clinician researcher career path to begin with? And had you always seen yourself doing this? Um, well, I did medicine because my mother told me to do it. And most people do it because they got enough points or they, they want to pursue an altruistic um, pathway. But I trusted my mother. I was too young. She said do it and I did. I believed her. And it doesn't sound very imaginative, but that's the reason why I did it. And of course, she was right. Mothers are always right. Everybody knows that. And my mother was also correct. So once I started, I just became hooked. And, um, and then once I started in research, it was initially contrived. Uh, but then it became addictive. And I'm afraid I can't think of any other way to describe my research other than it became a form of addiction. It's the curiosity part that became addictive, just satisfying that curiosity. And um, it doesn't come naturally, you have to feed it, you have to encourage it. But once it starts, one needs more and more and more. And um, I think it's also a privilege to have a curious mind and to be in a job that allowed me to have that. Absolutely brilliant. And um, Fergus, I'm just wondering, you know, had you always seen yourself going into a, you know, combining the research element of your career with the clinical part? We had Professor Noel Caplice who was saying, you know, he was geared towards a clinical route until he was introduced to kind of research by some of his mentors in Australia. Um, so like, you know, had you kind of always seen yourself combining both? 
Um, I'm not sure. I uh, believe that there's a lot of chance that occurs and uh, one has to grab certain opportunities. And I think my experience, firstly in Canada and then later in the United States, solidified that pursuit of curiosity and fulfillment of curiosity and research is the best way to do it. But in terms of combining, I, I always knew I'd never not want to be a clinician. I always knew I wanted to see patients. The only issue for me was what kind of doctor would I do, be? Would I be a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, an immunologist? So I always knew I was going to be seeing patients. And then when the bench research came along and I became somewhat skilled at it, um, it was just an obvious choice then to apply that to the patients. And on that point then, um, I guess our show is all about narrowing the void between bench to bedside. And that's to say translational medicine. Mm. is It's all about promoting higher level of collaboration interaction between the scientists carrying out the research and the clinicians treating those patients affected by disease and the patients themselves. So could you tell us how this translational medicine approach has been evident in your career? Well, as I hinted, I'm a big believer on making observations with humans and then exploring them in the laboratory. Uh, you know, I go from humans to animals when it suits me, uh, but not the other way around in the sense that when I can't answer a question with human tissue or human volunteers for logistical or ethical reasons, I go, I go to animal models for that. But, but I don't start with animal models, make an observation, and then try and shoehorn that observation into some human application. So I'm a bedside-to-bench type of person and then back to the bedside. So I, I'll give you a few examples. Um, again, by chance... Um, I was interested in chronic disease and if you're a gastroenterologist, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis would be the obvious choices. And while in practice uh, here in Cork, I set up an inflammatory bowel disease clinic, which would help serve the patients, but also would help us focus on that disease. And it became clear at one stage that we were doing uh, that my practice had changed. I was observing the fact that patients were no longer spending huge amounts of time in the hospital. It had become largely an outpatient practice. And that was mainly because of advances in radiology, CT scanning. So we started to ask questions about the CT and we started to ask questions. We weren't the first, but we were one of the main people to identify some of the risks of diagnostic radiation uh, that the patient was being exposed to. and. It was particularly evident in patients with Crohn's disease because it's chronic relapsing and remitting and they need a lot of visualizations and scans. So I, we teamed up with um, Professor Marr, Michael Marr in UCC and in Cork University Hospital and in Mercy. And we um, pursued ways in which we could reduce the radiation exposure uh, to patients with Crohn's disease. And we devised, uh, with the help of General Electric, we devised algorithms and models by which we could get the same quality scan without the same exposure to, to, to radiation. We were able to reduce the radiation exposure by fully 80%. So it became for a while that Cork actually was the safest place on the globe to have a CT scan if you happen to have Crohn's disease. Now that didn't necessarily apply to other conditions, but we were able to say able to do it for Crohn's disease. And we went on to do a controlled trial to actually prove this was the case, that we were not missing anything important when we do these low radiation exposures. It was computer 
technology and software that allowed us to, to clean up the images, but it were quite sufficient for Crohn's disease. So there's a tangible example where the research question, it starts with a question, is it safe? Can we make it safer? We try and devise something and then we test it. It starts with a question, but it led immediately to a policy change and it changed my practice practically overnight and it made it safer for patients. Another one was um, in the clinic one day, um, I had students with me in the clinic, as is always the case, and I had a few patients in that, were that seemed to be in remission by all criteria that we had. CT, blood tests, clinical examination, they seemed to be in remission. And yet one or two of the patients were still complaining of symptoms. And I made the point, well, this is probably just irritable bowel syndrome overlaid on Crohn's disease, but the Crohn's is okay and you just have irritable bowel syndrome, therefore don't worry about this. Until one of the students put his hand up and said, well, Dr. Shannon, I don't know about this. You know, I've the impression, I've been watching you now for a few weeks and I've the impression when these patients are well, they're really well. They don't complain when they're not active with Crohn's disease. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been sort of peddling a sort of a received wisdom for years. Maybe we should do some more tests to find out if actually the patients who we think are in remission are truly in remission. And let's get a bit more clever about this. Now, we couldn't do invasive tests on everyone. So we were the first to apply a thing called calprotectin, which is a, a protein in feces that, that shouldn't be there in large amounts. And it's a measure of neutrophils. It's, it's present in neutrophils, which are inflammatory markers. And if you find it elevated above a certain level, it means inflammation. So we decided we would take all these comers, all comers to the clinic and look at the people who we thought were in remission. And we compared those who had still had symptoms with those who did not have symptoms. And it screamed out at us. It just jumped out. The people who we thought were in remission but still had symptoms had very high calprotectin levels and it forced us to select them to go forward then for the more invasive tests and sure enough we did find that actually they did actually have ulcers and their, their Crohn's disease was active. That was an immediate a question solved, answered, policy change, change of practice and we published all this of course. And it made a huge difference. And this was long before Calprotectin. It was probably about 15 years before Calprotectin became a standard test in the hospital. We used it as a research test. But it was, again, bringing bench side, clinical side observations, I should say, to the bench and then back to the patient. So we used the laboratory to answer questions that were relevant to the patient. And it always made sense to me that if you're seeing all these patients, isn't it far more efficient to apply your research to answering their questions? And it, good research, in my view, always begins with good questions. And they don't have to be elaborate. They can be very simple. And it's remarkable uh, how many questions are out there that people have been doing things for years and never questioned the value of it. Another one was with, with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. There was at one stage literature suggesting that Clostridium difficile infection might cause Crohn's disease. Now that was dispelled, but then it was questioned, could it actually be triggering flare-ups? And there were isolated reports finding this quite common in patients with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. And it even led to the speculation that could the doctors and their instruments, when we bring them in for endoscopy, could we be actually passaging, the, 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 could we be transmitting this iatrogenically on the scopes? Because it's a spore-forming organism and quite resistant to a lot of of treatments. 
So we set about answering that and we took patients actually in the community who had not been in a hospital, patients who were in remission, just attending the clinic, but they hadn't been inpatients and they had not received any scopes. And we actually found, yeah, Crohn's disease, are, so Crohn's disease is commonly associated with the detection of low levels of Clostridium difficile in their stool, much higher than you see in the background population. But they were in remission. It wasn't troubling them. It was just higher rates of detection. And then we came to ribotype them and we found they were from all different sources. They were not getting it from any particular source in the hospital. It was just community acquired. And the prevalence of C. diff, uh, which is shortened to, is more a feature of the poor handling that the immune system of patients with Crohn's disease have rather than actually something that's causing the disease. It was secondary. That was another problem that was solved by just asking the question, doing the research and applying it back. And again, making you know, being able to inform patients and advise doctors that they can dispel this this concern that they had. Um, so there are some examples of how you can do it from a set clinic. Um, then we set up APC Microbiome Ireland in 2003. And I just want to read you the, the mission statement, which is still valuable, still valid, and it emphasizes that translational aspect. Because I've just been talking about translation of observations to the patient and to practice. I want to talk about translation now to something that might be commercial and could help big, broader society. The mission statement was linking Irish science with industry to drive excellence in research, education and outreach in gastrointestinal health. Industry is the word there. We were doing this to help um, the commercial world, to help industry. We were also using industry um, to help us commercialize some of the research. And that's important because if you don't protect the intellectual property, if you don't protect what you've observed, then in some situations it's lost to mankind because the commercial route will only be valid if someone can make money from it and they've got to be able to hold patents on this. Whereas if you just blow that and announce it to the world, then drug companies, etc., can't actually use it and it'll never become available to, 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 to the public. So it was an important part for us and we spun out a number of companies based on some of the research we were seeing. But there was one simple non-commercial thing that I'm very proud of that I want to uh, name check Professor Paul O'Toole uh, for. Uh, he and we and uh, many of the geriatricians in the city of Cork and other physicians and the dietitians, we set about looking at the diet of elderly people. And we found actually as people got older, they changed their diet and they tend to collapse their the dietary diversity. They, because they're a dentition and they may be in an institution, they tend to go towards monotonous foods or milk-based foods. And we found that that led to a collapse in the diversity of the microbiome. Now that may not sound that interesting except to the fact that we correlated that with frailty. So if your microbiome is collapsing because your diet is collapsing, frailty is a significant condition and it leads to falls and a lot of the problems that the elderly people have. So when this was published in Nature, the top scientific journal uh, from APC Cork, the editor of The Guardian, the editor wrote a leading article that was an editorial not just an article an editorial in the guardian about this research and he commented that the cork researchers had shown that diversity is not just the staple i should say not just the spice of life it's staple the point being that we now have to revise 
a lot of what we say about standard nutritional assessment of patients and incorporate diversity into it. And in fact, the microbiome is beginning to underpin most of what we know about diet. Uh, you can't discuss diet and nutrition without talking about the microbiome because it's the transducer of the nutrient signals that we give, give it. When we eat, we're not just feeding ourselves, we're feeding our microbes. And that in turn has relevance to health. So that was a huge part of translating simple scientific observations, starting with humans, going to the lab to study microbes, applying it back and changing nutritional practice in our hospitals. That's uh, yeah, super. That's really, really interesting. I've, mm-hmm. I'd never actually thought of it from the other way of bringing it from the bed to the bench side. So it's great to hear that kind of different point of view. And Fergus, could I just ask, what has a challenge been that you've faced along your career? Um, I think the biggest challenge and the most stimulating one for me is actually how we talk to patients, the doctor-patient interaction. And uh, that has changed in my time and will certainly change in your time. And the challenges there are things like time. Every advance that has been introduced to medicine within the last 40 or 50 years has reduced the amount of time a doctor has talking to patients, not extended it. And you one would imagine it would have extended the amount of time because we can diagnose them quicker. Uh, But actually the opposite is the case. So time is diminishing. So if you, there are lots of asymmetries when we talk to patients. One asymmetry is simply that the doctor is time conscious and rushed, overburdened. The patient actually will almost always feel they didn't get enough time with the, with the doctor. But also the illness actually changes the patient's perception of time. Because when you're in a crisis and you're sick, actually time slows down your perception of time greatly slows down. And this has been remarked on by many, many people who have suffered life-threatening illnesses. So we're going in the opposite direction as doctors and the patient has actually changed perception. It's a major problem stumbling block for communication. And um, there again is an example of translational medicine. It took me a long time to deal and grapple with this. And one small thing I did that made the doctor-patient exchange and my clinic far more enjoyable for me and I think for my patients was I started some years ago when I would dictate the referral note or the, the response note back to the general practitioner or even the chart entry. I started dictating my note in the presence of the patient. I didn't wait for the patients to be gone and then do all the dictations at the end. I started while the patient was there. So they heard what I was about to write. They heard what I was saying. They heard what I was thinking. They nodded in agreement when they said the facts were correct. It meant I, d- I was accurate. I was getting the drug dosage r- right. Invariably, when you look at the charts, it's wrong. But I was getting it right because the patient was right in front of me. And they were getting a sense of engagement and um, I felt that it was also improving their adherence to the, to the plan and to the medications. So that was, if you like, a problem that I noticed with the doctor-patient relationship that's still there, but in some small way solved and translated back to the patient. Yeah, and um, for listeners who aren't aware, you recently published a book on that same topic, The Language of Illness, and we had... We were fortunate to have Dr. Tony Foley on our podcast um, back in 2021, and he was speaking about, in particular in the context of dementia, and how our language has immense power in reminding and treating the person as a person, 
and not the patient first and just ensuring that that level of empathy which is crucial to the doctor patient relationship is is upheld um could you tell us a bit more about that and um a bit more about your book well the the book um really was in development over many years and many many influences and too numerous to, for me to mention but many of them are clinicians still active in cork um but the premise was really twofold that i actually think medical language is completely outdated and i think a lot of us speak a language that's different to that of our patients and you know there's several chapters of book there but but let me summarize one by saying um, if you had a training similar to mine, and I think it, you did, um, you learnt in the first year of your medical studentship approximately 10,000 words. This has actually been calculated a number of times. Some people would put the figure higher. 10,000 words. And it begins with actually converting the familiar into the unfamiliar. So there are words like <clears throat> runny nose, which to me is a perfectly acceptable description, uh, but it's converted into rhinitis. You learnt that um, bleeding must be haemorrhage. You learnt that a nosebleed becomes epistaxis. And you learnt that jaundice becomes icterus. Uh, and you learned that an itch, what's wrong with the word itch? But itch had to become pruritus. Incidentally, usually misspelled with IS at the end instead of US. Anyway, so I have to go around and suffer the itch of actually having to co correct all these and then say we don't even need the word pruritus. So there are all these words in medicine. And then it extends even to our sentences. We say things like, past medical history. Well, if it's history, it's in the past. If it's in the past, it's history. So why do we lump all these words in? And then, of course, when we don't know what we're talking about, we use words like etiology. I don't know what the etiology is, but if we know that the cause is actually smoking, we're straight out with it. We say the cause of your cough is smoking. But if we don't know what we're talking about we have to dream up big words like pathogenesis and etiology and my book is simply a, is in the first instance a plea for simpler language and eliminating most of that 19th century language that are used that's used to describe some of the diseases the second part of the book is actually to show that actually bad language becomes bad medicine it isn't just like some little nuance that i'm nitty-gritty of of gram grammar that i'm bothered about but bad language can lead to bad medicine. Examples. Sometimes when a big medical word is applied, it leads to more aggressive treatment and even mismanagement of patients. And the most immediate example I can give you is actually during COVID last year. The New York Times ran a piece and had a photograph of a woman who was distressed, distraught because she had her brush and uh, great wads of hair were coming out. And um, during the course of the article, this as she described it was hair thinning, but that then became transmuted into alopecia and baldness. Well, that's what baldness means, but baldness and then alopecia, it was given the medical term. So then there were people writing, it got onto social media, and then there were people writing in, prescribing all kinds of treatments like various exfoliants and corrosives to apply to the scalp uh, for this woman to use. When in actual fact, what she had was something that's been well known for a long, long time, and that is that all forms of stress, whether it be physical or, or psychological, actually lead to loss of hair. That never leads to baldness. It actually has a medical term, telegonofluvium. It's well known. I see it all the time with inflammatory bowel disease. It occurs approximately somewhere in the first three months after the stressor. And there's one thing that's for certain about it. 
it always resolves. It just needs reassurance and it never needs any aggressive medical therapy. But there is a very topical example, but there are innumerable examples that I cite in my book to show some of the profoundly harmful things that have happened when people have escalated their language and use inappropriate medical terms. It leaves, leads to excessive use and potentially harmful use of medications. And of course, the commercial world has exploited this. They'll frequently invent things. And as you know, if you were watching some of the programs about the opioid pandemic, they invented conditions. They invented something called breakthrough pain. What on earth is that? They invented psychic tension. There was one company that actually had a food when I was a youngster and they used to advertise it as something you need to eat this food because it was for night starvation. There is no such thing as night starvation, but they invented this. And uh, so there are innumerable examples where vulnerable people can wittingly or unwittingly be harmed by inappropriate use of language. And then there's simpler things that uh, just stigmatizing language. Look at the way people who are overweight or obese are actually stigmatized, shamed. And there's one particular journalist who actually blames them. And when in actual fact, we know from our science that there are innumerable ca cases of uh, individuals overweight or obese where it's either it's perhaps epigenetic it's something that is transmissible but it's from an earlier time we also know the microbiome contributes to the net calorie assimilation into the body that's not someone's fault we acquire a microbiome from 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 our our mothers initially uh, so there are innumerable examples where uh, it's it's just absolutely not the case and totally inappropriate to blame an individual for their, for their, for being overweight. And even the term obese is, is in my view, uh, stigmatizing in itself, but lots of other examples where people uh, are, people try to define them by their illness, whereas no one should be defined by their illness. We would never say someone is a leper today. We would say they have leprosy or they suffer from leprosy. We should not, in fact, say there's an obese person. There's someone who happens to have a problem with overweight. Um, and stigmatizing language is pervasive in our medical language. So some of our language complete concludes, the book says, some of our language is completely redundant, unnecessary, a legacy from the 19th century. Most of the words you actually learn in medical school are not necessary. So having learned all those words, you then go into the clinic and you try and change the words back to what the patient uses. And you're not using the illness words. Doctors generally use disease words but the patients suffer illness. So illness words like anger, suffering. Look up the index of any of your medical textbooks and you won't see the word suffering there. You don't see words like healing there. You don't see the words that patients care about. They perhaps were once in our medical textbooks, but they're not there now. And what would be your kind of like final piece of advice in terms of that, in terms of the language that future doctors and future scientists can use to further oh, enhance? Well, I think, you know, don't let bad language be one of the reasons that reduces the effective amount of time. I started by saying we've we've limited time with our patients. Time yeah. is the biggest challenge, but let's not let language get in the way. Okay. And if patients come in complaining of a particular thing, use their words. We don't need to translate their words into something else. And you will have seen misdiagnosis. The number of times when students meet a patient and say, he's a bad historian, doctor, when they're recounting the case history, when in actual fact, they've missed the point. They should have just said, 
I was unable to get the facts from the patient. He was unable to tell me some of the dates. That could be important because that might mean the patient has delirium, which is reversible, treatable. But if you just dismiss it as bad medical historian, then you, but you've translated something, you've transmuted it into something. Use their words, be as close to source as you can, keep it as simple as possible. And the same applies to your translational research. Simple questions, complicated stories and answers, but simple questions start with great research. And um, just to go back to one of your earlier points, Fergus, on the immense power of the gut microbiome in terms of longevity. Uh, We came across an interesting study of yours that explored the microbiomes of members of the Cork travelling community. And we were wondering, could you tell our listeners a bit more about the study and some of its findings and how that that relates to the gut microbiome? And thank you for saying it. I should have brought that up as one of the examples in in the beginning, because I think that's a superbly ongoing example of how you can translate curiosity driven research translated into uh, policy. We've been talking about translating for commercial reasons, translating for uh, practical reasons, uh, for the way in which you practice medicine, translating for the doctor-patient relationship. But what about policy? The health of the Irish travellers is in jeopardy. It's been known from a study of about 15 years ago that their survival is truncated. Uh, They suffer from all the diseases of marginalisation and poverty. Um, but it had, uh, and that's a scandal in itself. What we did was we asked the question, could the travellers in some way be protected from some of the diseases because of their microbiome? It had been shown, and I know from my work in IBD, that I rarely ever saw a traveller. In fact, I never saw a traveller with inflammatory bowel disease. And I know it's that similar story around the country. Could that be related to the microbiome, given that the microbiome is related to the risk of IBD? So that was my starting premise. That was my curiosity-driven idea. What the travellers wanted was, um, could we do something that related to their health? And of course, that does relate to their health. We engaged with them. They, effect, they actually did the study first. We did the lab part and they did the actual study. And the results astonished all of us because we found that the travel, Irish travellers have retained an ancient microbiome, something that you see more likely in the hunter-gatherers in Tanzania or Mongolian horsemen or Peruvian farmers. These are ancient, ancient microbiomes that are non-industrialized, whereas most of us have what's called an industrialized microbiome uh, that is quite different, less diverse and more prone, more, more associated with risk of chronic disease and incidentally associated with increased prevalence of organisms that are antibiotic resistant. So how could that possibly be? And how can we retain this? What the travellers got from that was a 21st century validation of their true ethnic identity. We were shown they are quite distinct. They're genetically the same, but microbiome wise, they are quite distinct. And that demands that we follow that to see what are the health consequences of that? How should you advise someone What kind of diet should you have if you're a non-industrialized microbiome versus an industrialized? What kind of fecal transplant should they have if they needed one of those? Um, Should we not biobank these strains? Why have they retained this? Can the settled community, the non-traveling community, benefit from this? Can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we all benefit from this thing? Um, But most particularly, it should translate into policy change for the travellers. And one policy change that we will be seeking would be, it would greatly facilitate our research in the travellers. 
if they could have a unique identifier number when they engage with the health service, when they come into hospital, there should be some way of, of recording their ethnic status. The government have given them separate ethnic status in 2017. It has to mean something. They should be allowed record, if they wish, if they wish, that they are travellers from the travelling community and that should be recorded in the chart. And then that would actually make it so much faster for us to be able to establish over a long period of time does it make a difference? What is the prevalence of certain diseases in the travellers, quite apart from the ones we already know? Are we correct in saying that the microbiome is linked to IBD and in fact they are protected from IBD? And is that changing? Because I fear that as we impose our culture on the travellers, they are actually, and we have evidence for it, they are losing their ancient microbiome. All of this is translatable to medicine and to policy change that's relevant to all of us. That's really interesting, and it's really interesting to compare the industrial versus the non-industrial uh, microbiomes. And Fergus, could I ask you what has been one of the highlights of your career, or the highlight of your career? Well, probably the highlight of my career has been um, getting people to collaborate and work together in teams. And that was, uh, that's always been the case, but it was put into, into orbit into a different level when we were, got the funding from Science Foundation Ireland to set up APC. Because that brought people from all the different disciplines, from the basic to clinical sciences and from amongst all the different clinical sciences. And initially we were funded for, uh, for a short period of time and then we were able to extend the funding and then we grew and grew and grew. And then they got to the stage that they couldn't stop us. But just getting people to, in Ireland it's unusual for people to work together. We tend to like to split up. But to get people to work together and share minds and share resources, share ideas, share heads, um, yeah, that's probably the, the that's the thing I'm most proud of. Super. And kind of a change of direction here, uh, Fergus. But uh, I think it's 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 an important point, and I'd really like to ask the question. Given your degree of success in your career, um, in this day and age, I think many of us students can fall into the trap of hustle culture in which we feel guilty if we're not studying every hour of every day. And now from having a quick look at your Twitter, I, I can see you're an avid golfer. And I was wondering, could you tell us, as students, um, just about the venture on our career, how much of an impact do you believe hobbies play in determining people's um, work and ability to optimise their potential. Yeah, I must distinguish being an avid golfer from being a good golfer. They're not, <laughs> the, they're not the same thing. And it's amazing how much nature appreciation can occur when you're at the golf course looking around. So most of my, most of my photographs are actually about uh, the prettiness of the fairways and the surroundings and not so much about the actual swing. Um, look, at this comes back to how you optimally use your time. And it's not easy because medicine, you're, you're married to it. You have to live, eat and and drink it and sleep it sometimes and and um, even doing research when I do microbiome research I actually try to think like a microbe I even like to imagine them and see them visualize them and I even get an artist to draw them for me um, because that's the best way I can make it real so like you like everyone I would struggle about optimal usage of time um, I would say when you do get your breaks take them when you do get a holiday take it I was never one for, as a medical student, you know, when I'd be granted those three months of holiday and I, I never did things like go off to the Mayo Clinic or go somewhere else like that. You know, I went and worked in a bar. Uh, I, I used the time, do something else, don't do medicine during that time, use the sabbatical time. 
um, use your weekends. Um, when it comes to reading, uh, by all means, read anything. But during the course of the reading, it's difficult to divorce your background in medicine from what you're reading. And, and good literature is full of medicine. It's actually full of interesting things about people. So anything about people and human experience is actually enriching your it's not necessarily making you a better doctor but it's enriching your your experience and that in some way must translate back to patients uh, but i think um hobbies they are important not too many but some and um and i'm afraid you just have to make time and you have to make yourself make time and and but that isn't easy uh and but but the value is that if you engage if you if it's anything, for, if it's French polishing or making something or artistic something or music or out on the golf course, when you're engaged in doing that, there's one thing for sure. You can't be thinking about medicine. So it is brain rest as well when you're doing something physical like that. And exercise is, is just a marvellous way to do it. And Fergus, we're just coming to the end now. So I was wondering if you could give us one piece of advice that we as college students could learn from. Oh, I, I think um, you won't learn from me. You'll learn more from your patients. And uh, don't think of it as uh, you being um, dominant or the asymmetry of the doctor-patient relationship. I would say um, learn from your patients. And if you'd one thing that you will always be able to do a good research study on, it would be to do some aspect of the doctor-patient relationship. There's loads of good science that could be done there still. Okay, super. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, Professor Shannon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.